Three months ago, there weren't enough masks. We were desperately sourcing from all over the world. People were making face coverings from scarves and bits of fabric. Now there are plenty of masks, but some people don't want to wear them. Come on, mask up America. Brought to you by the Ed Council. Pro basketball is gaining rapid strides, and we expect soon to see it on the same level as pro football and pro baseball. It's rare for any figure in sports to attain the honor given to Gottlieb on this day. Gottlieb was among the few nominations approved for his record of achievements. I go back to Eddie Gottlieb probably longer than anybody here. I first met him in 1946. For our alumnus, Eddie Gottlieb, 1898 to 1979, pioneer in the history of basketball, May 2014. To me, it's an honor, a great privilege to be in and be of the Commissioner Adam Silver and to represent the NBA. Well, Eddie Gottlieb was not only one of the founders of what became the NBA, but he was also a coach and later an owner of the Philadelphia Warriors. He won two championships with that team. And finally, he was the scheduler. He made up all the NBA schedules for every team for 30 years. As you've heard, Eddie Gottlieb, known as the Mogul or Mr. Basketball. So in addition to the NBA trophy, which is named after him, we now have, for all time, the historical marker bearing his name as a reminder of his glorious past. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Philadelphia, hello. Hey, how are you doing, everybody? It's Tim Hanlon, and it's Good Seats Still Available, our curious little podcast, our little journey each week into what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for finding us, and yes, we're going to Philly. Great town. Philly, great sports city for sure. And uh, that clip is uh, indicative for sure. 2014 was the year that clip was uh, grabbed from. And it was a little uh, history lesson, if you will, that we're going to get into in uh, more expansive form this week with our guest, Rich Westcott. Uh, He, the author of a zillion books about sports, uh, particularly in in Philadelphia, but uh, across across a wide array of of stuff generally too. Um, that uh, clip was uh, the uh, dedication uh, ceremony of the historical marker that uh, sits on the grounds of South Philadelphia High School. Uh, it's from 2014, May 22nd, uh, 2014 to be exact. Uh, you heard a couple of, of voices there, one being uh, Georgetown graduate and, and NBA star Dikembe Mutombo, a little Hoya uh, goodness there. Uh, as well as our guest this week, Rich uh, Westcott, talking about the great Eddie Gottlieb. Who is Eddie Gottlieb, you say? Well, he's known as the mogul uh, and arguably is one of the uh, most uh, unsung uh, pioneers of basketball in the United States. Um, uh, We're going to get into this uh, amazing story of this guy who, uh, during uh, the, the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, uh, almost single-handedly uh, kept uh, the spirit of basketball alive and was responsible for thereafter uh, the uh, uh, the existence of the professional game of basketball uh, as things like the American Basketball League uh, 
the first version of such, uh, the Basketball Association of America, the BAA, uh, and uh, it being one of the two major tributaries into what became ultimately today's NBA, the National Basketball Association. Eddie Gottlieb, uh, a pioneer and a Hall of Fame member for various uh, good reasons, uh, was part of an, an essential part of the founding and the history of pro basketball in the United States. Uh, Philadelphia was largely the, the place by which he did that. And we're going to get into some of the specifics of that with Rich uh, coming up in a few moments. But he's also known as not only the mogul, but also Mr. Basketball. Uh, this is a guy who the NBA Rookie of the Year Award is named after. Um, he uh, was uh, part of uh, the early days of the Harlem Globetrotters, helping his pal uh, Abe Saperstein uh, in terms of partnering uh, and, uh, and getting the tours out there uh, for the team. He was the uh, original coach of the Philadelphia Warriors, who then moved on to uh, Oakland and Golden State to become the Warriors that we know today. Um, he was the scheduler for decades. He did the the scheduling of the Basketball Association of America, the NBA, uh, all kinds of stuff, ensuring that uh, various teams would get to the right places and he would uh, juggle uh, train schedules and plane schedules and all that kind of stuff. He literally did that stuff by hand until, I guess, the late 70s, early 80s, uh, when the introduction of some computer programs came into play. And, of course, he didn't give that uh, up uh, that responsibility lightly, uh, as you'll hear in, in, a, in a little while. He was the founder and uh, just about everything you can imagine, coach, player, scout, uh, uh, general manager, ticket seller, uh, promoter for whatever – for the Philadelphia Spas, yeah, very legendary team uh, in the foundation of the NBA, the uh, the, the roots of which uh, ultimately sort of uh, became uh, the Philadelphia Warriors in two different versions, uh, and then the ultimate uh, Warriors team that wound up be, uh, becoming Golden State. All of this plus, if you can believe it, this was a guy, Eddie Gottlieb, who was also uh, part financier and part owner of and promoter of the Philadelphia stars of the Negro national league back in the day. No, not the uh, USFL football team. I, you know, Lord knows if he had lived on uh, for decades later, he probably would have been involved in that for all, all we know. But Eddie Gottlieb was an amazingly interesting guy. Uh, they call him the mogul for good reason. He was uh, uh, an industrious guy, never married um, and an immigrant from uh, the Ukraine and, uh, and he sports was in his blood from day one uh, as he, uh, you know, uh, entered these uh, uh, these gates of, of the United States and, and growing up in Philadelphia. Uh, and he was uh, enamored with basketball for sure, but all kinds of sports. And it's a fascinating story. And this is a guy you need to know. If you consider yourself a hoops fan, uh, you could strongly make the argument that pro hoops, the pro game, the NBA, would not be what it is today. Frankly, might not even be around today if it were not for this guy, Eddie Gottlieb. And our conversation to uh, get us uh, deep into that story with Rich Westcott, our guest, coming up in just a few moments. This is an amazing story and a great conversation. You will uh, you will not be disappointed. And the book, by the way, that Rich 
wrote, one of the uh, dozens that he's written about all kinds of stuff, Philadelphia and sports, is called The Mogul. It's from uh, Temple University Press. And uh, we're going to get into uh, that story in a moment's time. Uh, Stay tuned. Uh, A quick promotional thank you to our pals at Ebbets Field Flannels, Ebbets, E-B-B-E-T-S, dot com. Uh, And it is, of course, uh, a treasure trove of uh, throwback and uh, uh, high quality stuff that uh, is uh, great wear to remember uh, and relish and uh, regale in the great stories of yore when it comes to professional, hey, even collegiate sports. Uh, Ebbets.com is the place to go uh, for all kinds of great stuff. And and, and let's uh, tip uh, a felt cap uh, in the general direction of Ebbets this week in remembrance of Eddie Gottlieb, our uh, topic du jour. Uh, again, Eddie being a, a, a chief part of the story of the Philadelphia stars of the Negro National League. And what better way to celebrate than by uh, grabbing one of uh, uh, or of two different versions that Ebbets Field Flannels has of the old Philadelphia Stars uh, jerseys. They're fantastic. One's the 1934 road jersey. The other is the 1939 version. I think it's the home version of the Philadelphia Stars of the Negro National League. Just one of the teams and uh, activities uh, are, are uh, topic this week, Eddie Gottlieb, was involved in. And you can get those and many, many other high-quality crafted Probably, I would say, uh, uh, you know, the best out there, the uh, the ultimate collections thereof from Ebbetsfield Flannels, ebbets.com, E-B-B-E-T-S dot com. And of course, not only for those jerseys, but everything else on the site, a promo code for you to save 10 percent is yours when you enter the code GOODSEATS10, GOODSEATS, the number 10, at ebbets.com, our pals at Ebbetsfield Flannels. Uh, we appreciate your support of our show, and uh, we uh, encourage you to uh, take advantage of their wares, and we uh, thank them for their sponsorship, and thank you for checking them out, of course. All right, let's uh, spin the dial into the intrigue of the story of the mogul. Let's call him that for sure. Eddie Gottlieb. Here's our conversation we had with author Rich Westcott. And uh, here's our conversation we had, uh, well, two, three weeks ago. Please, as always... Enjoy. You're kind of like the dean of like Philadelphia sports guys, right? I mean, you're a Philly guy, pretty much, right? Still, even well, yeah, born and raised here, still here. And what was and what was your what was the career path? You were uh, a sports writer. You've written. You've authored. I don't know dozens of books now. Um, give me a little background as to how you sort of got involved and interested in focused on sports and maybe Philadelphia in particular and, and generally? Well, I, I, it's a weird story in a way because in college uh, I was a pitcher on the baseball team and I was a business administration major. And my senior year I hurt my arm. Uh, what today would have required probably Tommy John surgery, but they didn't know that back then. So I couldn't pitch anymore. And I had a fraternity brother who uh, was the editor of the student newspaper and he said to me, hey, uh, how about if you cover the baseball team for the paper this spring? I said, no, I can't do that. I've never written anything. I don't know how to cover a team. And we went back and forth, and he said, hey, well, just try it for a couple of weeks. He says, I'll try to help you, but give it a try. Well, a couple of weeks went on, and I fell in love with it. <laughs> it didn't take long. And uh, so as soon as I got out of college, instead of 
looking for a job in my major, which was marketing. I started looking for newspaper jobs, and great uh, to my great luck, I found one, and that started my uh, career. And uh, so I, I've written for newspapers and magazines uh, as writer, editor, and so forth uh, ever since. Uh, any, any specific beats or uh, sports in particular that you sort of latched onto or became more fascinated with or, or indulged in uh, than others? Well, actually, uh, throughout my career, I've always been a, you know, baseball has been my number one sport. I've always been a baseball guy. But along the way, and I, I worked for a couple different newspapers over time and freelance for a lot of others. Um, I did I did cover other sports. I covered Eagles, the Eagles uh, for a while. Um, I didn't go on the road with them, but I covered all their home games. Uh, I used to cover uh, when we had the uh, 76ers uh, playing in their good days. Uh, we had uh, I used to cover some of their games. So I, I covered a lot of stuff. I covered golf. I was a golf writer for one paper that I worked for. And, uh, you know, it was uh, pretty well varied, but uh, when all all said and done, I, I still came back to baseball. And, uh, you know, we, one paper I worked for, we covered a lot of high school sports, and uh, we had we had some good high school players around here. In fact, uh, and, uh, as we speak, the very town that I live in uh, was where Mike Socia came from, and uh, so did Jeff Petrie, uh, uh, NBA player. And we've we've had a pretty good pretty good group coming from uh, not only this town where I live, but uh, the Delaware County where, where we're located. So it's been a it's been a fun trip. Well, all right. How how do you? Um, and again, for our listeners, uh, Rich has penned what is it twenty two, twenty four, something like that books. Twenty seven. Twenty seven. Thank you. I just, I just, uh, I'm working on my twenty seventh. Actually, I, I didn't want to sell you short, uh, but we'll, we'll of course be promoting those uh, both before and after the uh, this this conversation. But one of the books that I stumbled across in your growing library, I think I could say that with uh, with earnest and uh, and honesty, um, is uh, a book about uh, a guy who, to me, just seems is almost a quintessential representation of not only Philadelphia sports generally, right, because there's a bunch of interesting sort of threads in there, but also the sport of basketball centrally, although not exclusively. How do you uh, sort of stumble across uh, this guy, Eddie Gottlieb, and why dive into his story? Because it's endlessly fascinating. It's obviously uh, he's, he's an influential person that I think everybody kind of needs to know more about if they don't already. Well, it goes without saying that Eddie Gottlieb is one of the foremost um, non-uniformed sports people in the history of Philadelphia. I mean, he ranks right up there with Connie Mack and Burt Bell and a few others. But he he is the man as far as uh, Philadelphia basketball goes and, and Philadelphia sports and, as a whole. And uh, along the way, I, I have produced several newspapers of my own. One, I did a Phillies paper for 14 years, just covered the Phillies. And I had subscribers in every state and 12 foreign countries. It, it went over pretty well. But along the way, I, I've also started several basketball papers. And one I started back in the early, in the 70s, uh, I got Eddie Gottlieb to write a column for me. 
So he was a, a, a columnist in this newspaper, uh, by which time he had long retired from uh, basketball. But <clears throat> he wrote a column, and uh, I got to know him a little bit. Not not real closely, but a little bit. And uh, ever since then, and then he passed away uh, in 1989, and all all those years, I, I learned a lot about him, and I kept thinking to myself, boy, there ought to be a book about this guy. What a great career he's had. And, I mean, there were so many different angles to it, too. Not just basketball, not just baseball, but a lot of other things. And, you know, you could go on forever talking about all the things he's done. So I, I kept thinking about this. It was in the back of my head for years. And I knew it wasn't going to be easy because, number one, Eddie had died, so I couldn't interview him. And number two, he had no uh, family. He was never married, never had any children, uh, never had any relatives that I could interview. So that was, and, and he was not a, a note taker. He never took notes and left them in a scrapbook or a notebook or anything like that. So, you know, I was really starting scratch from, from an empty bin, so to speak. But I wanted to write about him because nothing had ever been written in a, in a way of anything of length. And I thought, gee, this is a book. It's got to be a book. And it, it bugged me for, for a number of years until I finally said, hey, i got to do it. And turned out uh, it was uh, probably the hardest book I've ever written. But um, m m one of the most enjoyable, if not the most enjoyable, and uh you know it was uh, was was great a great uh, uh thing for me to do i thought and and i still look at it as one of my best books without without a doubt and how do, and, you, how do you start uh, do you go after uh confidants and and people who uh directly work with him i mean the closest thing i guess to getting to him now that he's he's passed uh, but, or do you go sort of the you know, uh, microfiche and newspaper and, uh, you know, previous accounts route first, or do you kind of blend those both together? H how do you sort of go about it knowing that your original source is no longer with us? I went everywhere you can imagine. I have never done so much research or so many interviews for any book. I interviewed, oh, I would say up around 70 people, including players who had played for him with the spas who had played for him with the Philadelphia Stars. Uh, I went back to, I found players uh, still alive who had played with the original Warriors team when, when it started, um, and many, many other people. Uh, I, I interviewed uh, uh, the son of his first lawyer. I interviewed uh, one of his final accountants. Um, I found people like that. I found one of his uh, business partners. Um, who are fortunately still alive, and I, I so I interviewed a lot of these people, um, and uh, thank heavens they were still around. Uh, he was very involved in a uh, sporting goods business, and uh, those the people with which uh, with whom he had been involved with, they had a, a big basketball camp in the Poconos, and I uh, tracked down uh, uh, the son of one of the co-owners with Gottlieb and uh, I, I got a great interview with him so 
that's where it went from an interview standpoint. Research-wise, I just turned over every some single cover I could find. I went to museums. I uh, went to the Basketball Hall of Fame, uh, which, of course, has uh, stuff about him. Uh, there, there are a couple hall, halls of fame in Philly, um, and there, there are museums. There's an African-American museum here. There's a Jewish museum. Um, there's a Philadelphia museum. They, they all had stuff on Gottlieb. So I, uh, and, and I look, um, there are several places here, Temple University being one, and the Philadelphia Library being another, that have archives from the local newspapers. So I, I went back through a lot of them. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I could go on and on about the, the, the places I, I, I looked and interviewed, um, but it was uh, it was an endless task, and I just looked every single place I could think of. And, you know, as I said, I had to do it this way because there was nothing that I could find on uh, uh, or interview of Gottlieb's family. And, uh, you know, he left no papers or anything. He was not he was not that kind of a person. So, yeah. Interviews and research is what or what did it. Interesting. And it also feels it seems to me uh, that there's some intersecting circles or, or uh, overlapping arcs, I guess, of uh, his his uh, persona, his work um, and all of it. Right. I mean, he's obviously he's an immigrant from from Ukraine, um, obviously uh, uh, the Jewish uh, angle, which we'll sort of talk about as, as some of the teams sort of coalesce that he's sort of part of. Um, there's the sport of basketball. Uh, why that, per se, as well as the story of Philadelphia, right? When those those last two are probably the strongest uh, supporting uh, pillars, I guess, of this story, because I, I think it's probably important to, to recognize that Philadelphia has always been, uh, and certainly with with Eddie's help in the in in the early part of the of the, the 20th century when in Philadelphia. Basketball, it was uh, quite a thing in Philly, and he was largely responsible for, uh, if not kindling the flame, certainly igniting it and and keeping it uh, very uh, alive and robust. Oh, absolutely. He 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 is the father of basketball in, in Philadelphia. In fact, they call him. Some people call him the father of pro basketball. But yeah, he did so many different things with basketball in Philly, and this is not a widely known thing, but he. He was a college basketball coach um, for a while, uh, not too long, but there, there used to be a call called a school called Philadelphia Textile Institute, which later became Philadelphia University and, and now has another name. But back in the days when it was called Philadelphia Textile, it was a really good small college uh, basketball team they had. And uh, I don't know if you ever heard of this guy, but Herb McGee, who was still a coach and one of the winnings basketball college basketball coaches in history uh is, is uh, coached and played at this school anyway Gottlieb coached coached them and he he played himself in high school you know when he when he uh went to high school in South Philly and uh then of course he, he started the spas and and went up through there but you know the thing I've that that caught my interest too about Gotti is not only has he been the father of basketball in Philadelphia, but he was involved in a lot of other sports. In fact, 
he once tried to buy the Phillies with with two other people. So, so let's explain that a little bit because uh, basketball is obviously sort of the biggest sort of big thread here, but baseball absolutely was part of his life, and, and starting maybe even with with the Negro League. So I guess I'm just trying to get a, an initial sense of here's a guy who I guess uh, even you know in his earliest years. Uh, emigrated, I guess, with his parents at the time. I'm, not, I'm, I'm assuming. I don't know if he came out by himself, but um, how does he get into sports and, and and baseball in particular and basketball in particular? Like Ukraine, I I, I don't think either of those sports were. <laughs> in, well, he probably wasn't even in his home country for all that long. He was kind of a teenager here, right? Well, he came to he, his parents immigrated from Ukraine in 1902 when Eddie was four years old. So he was just a little kid, and originally uh, they went through Ellis Island, which is another place I researched, and uh, wound up living in New York uh, for six years. And then in 1908, they came to Philly and located in uh, an area that was primarily um, resided in by immigrants. And uh, his his parents uh, lived there, and he went started to school there. And as I said, eventually played basketball on his high school team and was involved in a little bit of baseball. So he was an he was a kind of an all-around athlete as well, a youngster. It sounds like he sounds like it's a, an assimilation story, right? Trying to fit in and play sports here with his is in his quote-unquote new country. Well, yeah, I'll tell you what, and I have a I have a son-in-law who's a, a movie director. Um I I've often told him this this could make a movie. I mean you know this this is such a great story and you know i mean here's a guy he as i said he he tried to buy the phillies one time um he was a, a promoter and he promoted um not only negro league games but he he was a promoter of the harlem globetrotters uh during the summer when they traveled to europe he went with them he promoted pro wrestling matches he was a, a commissioner of a semi-pro football league in Philly, and uh, you know he did all these other things. He he promoted um, more than 500 amateur teams in the Philadelphia area, and if you didn't have him as your promoter, there was a good chance you wouldn't get any games because he had control basically of the whole Philadelphia area as a promoter and a booking agent, and. This, of course, was all be, before the, uh, he went with the Warriors. But, you know, he was doing all these things in other sports. And uh, he happened to go to a high school that uh, uh, also uh, included among its alumni Mario Lanza, Eddie Fisher, uh, Chubby Checker, uh, Frankie Avalon, Holy uh, Joey Bishop, uh, Bobby Rydell. Stan Getz, I could go on and on. These all went guys all went to the same high school, not at the same time, of course, but they went to the same high school that Eddie did. It was called South Philadelphia High School at that point, and he went. All these guys went there, and some of them uh, he promoted their careers when they were young guys starting out. Like he he took Joey Bishop under his wing, for instance, and he was his booking agent in his the early part of his career and and some of these other guys he did too and uh, you know i mean here here's a guy now when he 
back then you only had to go to college for two years to become a teacher and that's what he did he went to college for two years got his teaching certificate and started to teach in, in the local school well along the way he was promoting starting to promote these different people in different uh, sports and then in several of his his uh, high school and and uh, college teammates uh he started a sporting goods business with so the three of them ran a sporting goods business and a lot of their goods they were they sold to the teams that Gottlieb was involved with you know it was sort of a nice little connection there from a business standpoint so he was doing all these things and Kind of, you know, kind, of a, kind of a hustler in some respects, in, in a good way. Well, he was a hustler, no kidding. Uh, he, he he certainly was that. But he, he now here was a guy. He like I said before, he had no family. Uh, he did he did have a sister who had various health issues, and she was not able to function on her own. And he he she lived with him throughout her whole life. He took care of her. Now, you know, she 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 couldn't she had nobody else to live with and she would have been in some kind of a you know, assisted living place had she not had him. But he lived in in a number of different places in Philadelphia, but along the way he always had he always took her and if he was on the road he would have somebody come in and take care of her. But that's what kind of guy he was. Um but you know, there. I mean, Paul Arison did the forward for this book, and he said he was one of the most important people in his entire life. Paul said that about Gotti, and and many of the other people I talked to said similar things. Now, you know, he was he was certainly no angel. I mean, he could he he was a people called him a, a terrific businessman, but. Uh, uh, I, I have in my book. I'm just looking at it. It said it described him as wise yet cautious, a stickler for details, loyal, honest, frugal, opinionated, gruff, profane, and cunning. They, they were some and a control freak. They were some of the things that described him during his days. But you know, he he did so many different things and. You know, he he was at one point was one of uh, five people in the Philadelphia area, including Connie Mack and the then owner of the Philly, Phillies. And in those days, uh, you couldn't play any sport here on Sunday. Um, that was illegal. It was a, a Pennsylvania state rule. They called it a blue law. And Gottlieb got together with these people in 1933. They had the Blue Laws overturned. And he was very, very much a part of that. And ever since then, they could play uh, sports on Sunday. But they couldn't before that. In fact, some of the teams, the pro teams here, when they wanted to play, they would have to travel on Sunday if they wanted to play, either to cross the river and go over to Camden, New Jersey, or go down and play in Wilmington, Delaware. But they could not play in in Pennsylvania. So he was a he was a major part of that. And you know, the, these are the kinds of things he did. 
<laughs> I mean, you know, you, you could go on and on. He just did so many different things. And, uh, you know, and, and of course, once, once he got to the NBA, um, he did all kinds of other things. Um, and he was the, one of the great things he did. He, was, he drew up the NBA schedule for 30 years. And he, he created the entire schedule for the, the league. And people who I talked to, they would say, they would often see him sitting at a table in a restaurant, having a meal with a uh, napkin and a pencil in his hand, and he was writing down uh, notes for the schedule. And sometimes, oh, he would, he would always sit there and he would check out the train, the airline schedules, the holidays, when other teams were playing in such and such a city, and all these things went into his doing, making up the schedule. And he did it for, like I say, 30 years, the whole NBA schedule. And the funny thing is, at one point, once computers started to come into circulation, they said, well, we're, we're going to have this done on a computer now. We don't need to have you do it anymore, Eddie. And he was doing it by hand. They put it on a computer. Now, this is, you know, way back in the early days of computers, and the computer couldn't do it. So they had to give it back to Eddie to do by hand. And, you know, but that was just one of his many, many stories about him. He was well, one of the. I, I suspect that that comes from, and maybe this sort of helps open up the door as to how he became such a titan of, of the world of basketball. I suspect that that's goes back to his earliest days uh, organizing and promoting uh, this this team that became the Spas that that had elements of, of actual scheduling in actual leagues, some of them semi-pro and amateur and some of them pro or almost pro, as well as uh, barnstorming kinds of uh, environments, yeah? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, once he got to the NBA, he was involved in all kinds of shit. Um, sorry. Uh, one of the things he helped to do was uh, originate the 24-second clock. He was one of the originators of that. He also wanted to, to draft Will Chamberlain, and Will Chamberlain was playing in Philadelphia as a high school kid, and he wanted to draft him. And back then you could only have a territorial draft for college guys. If a guy went to Penn, you had a first shot at him if you wanted it. Well, he tried to get Chamberlain to go to local. He wanted him to go to Penn or Temple or someplace locally, which Chamberlain did not want to do. And because of that, Gottlieb put through uh, a measure that that gave teams the territorial rights to draft local high school players, even if they went to college some other place. And at the same time, Red Auerbach was trying to get Chamberlain to go to Harvard so he could draft him. But Gottlieb pushed it through, and you could draft uh, high school players in your in your territory. So, I mean, it was just one thing after another after another that he did. Yeah, true Philadelphian, I guess, at that, right? So that's um, – well, let's back up for a second. G- give me – give us a sense of how this Spa's story came into being, because um, – Frankly, that's really the uh, the essential root, right, of of his entree and and overwhelming influence into the pro game as it itself became 
a pro game, right? Because, uh, you know, circa late 19 teens, right? Uh, when he kind of started this uh, organizing uh, this team, um, there really wasn't any pro game to really speak of, right? So maybe a little background as to sort of the origins of this spas thing and how. Well, the spas were formed in 1919 by Gottlieb and these two friends of his, uh, the three of whom later became the owners of the sporting goods business. And they were all good buddies. They had gone to high school together and played played basketball together. So when they got out of uh, college, so to speak, two years in college, they formed uh, this basketball team, and they called it the Spas, which stood for South Philadelphia Hebrew Association. So the team was uh, consisted of, of only Jewish fellows. And, you know, today that would not go over so well. But um, it did back then, and it eventually became the first pro basketball team in Philadelphia. Um, they went from being like an amateur team to a pro team, and then they played in several different leagues along the way, including the American League. And uh, that was the team. Now, the, the Spas really initiated not only pro basketball, but but all basketball in Philadelphia. I mean, yeah, there have been some college teams. And it's it's always been said that the first college basketball game in this country was played in Philadelphia, and it was between Haverford College and Temple. And it was played in, let's see, what they say, 18, 1896, I'm going to say, and around there. And Haverford beat Temple 6-4. to four. And what has been said is the first college basketball game. Six to four. <laughs> anyway, uh, so they got they got into uh, the spas, and the spas really helped initiate the interest in basketball in Philadelphia. I mean, yeah, Temple was playing, and Penn was playing, and some others were, but people people got interested in the spas, and they would travel around and play in different areas, and they were, you know, eventually got into several different leagues. And and that was the father of basketball in Philadelphia. Well, it, they was were. Also, it also, uh, it, it seems almost even more humble than that, right? Almost, it was like a, almost like a social event, right? I mean, uh, it was sort of a, a traveling kind of thing. And, and I guess when, when leagues were starting to sort of bubble up or college players, you know, I graduated and still had the itch to play, um, but I, I'm guessing it was, I want to say ragtag, but it, it, um, how organized was it prior to this uh, original American Basketball League? Probably not much, right? Uh, well, they did. Still, they played in several different leagues that were considered pro leagues over that period of time. In fact, during the main years of their existence, they won 13 championships in 22 years, including seven in the American League. But when you said it was uh it it had a connection with social activities uh the interesting thing about the spas they played at a hotel called the broadwood hotel which was one of philadelphia's major hotels uh in downtown philly they had a basketball court there 
And so that was the spa's home court. And you would have to go up the stairs, and if you didn't want to pay, a lot of people would just hang over the balcony and watch down below to see the game. But after every game at the Broadwood Hotel, they had a dance. And the people who were so interested stayed and had and went to this dance. And as it turned out, many people um, met their uh, wives or husbands there, including some of whom I interviewed. They, they went to a basketball game, and it became rather famous, a spas game followed by a spas dance. And they would have a band there, and it was, in fact, people were not allowed to come to the dance unless they went to the basketball game and bought a ticket. If you just snuck in, they'd throw you out. <clears throat> but it was a big event, and it got a lot of attention in Philly, and, and it attracted, you know, big crowds to spas games <clears throat> because there was this kind of a double treat. And that was one of the interesting things about the spas history. They had this this dance, and, you know, they, they played at this place virtually in their entire lives, um, the Broadwood Hotel no longer exists, but it was there was their home for most of the the whole time they played. Well, that it sounds like you know that, that sounds like uh, Gottlieb as as <clears throat> entrepreneur as much as he is schedule maker in basketball. Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, when I I, I said he 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 uh, tried to buy the Phillies, well, that was one case of his entrepreneurial ship. Um, he also uh, was a, was the uh, primary owner of the Philadelphia Stars Negro League team. Um, he, he eventually owned the Warriors. Uh, in fact, in 1952, he bought the team, having been the coach up to that point uh, and general manager. He bought the team for $25,000 in 1952. And in 1962, when San Francisco was interested in buying the team, he sold it to them for a hundred for eight hundred and fifty thousand. So in ten years, he made a pretty good profit. But you know, he was an entrepreneur, no question about it, and he was involved in and in, in many of these things. And and uh, you know, he wasn't just a a coach or uh, even a general manager. He had a lot of other things going on. Give me a sense of of how he takes this spas team slash social phenomenon and sort of gets it, if you will, into, I guess, what was, I want to say quickly becoming, but certainly becoming the pro game, right? So there's there's the sort of kind of testing of the waters by playing some exhibitions against some of the uh, fledgling American Basketball League teams and, and doing quite well against those teams. And then, and then kind of making the jump itself in the in the manner of another uh, name, the the Warriors in the early ABL for a couple of years, and then obviously that sort of goes sideways with the depression, and the ABL comes back, and the Warriors come back. But I, I just I'm curious as to like how what do you think his process was, his thinking was about? I mean, did he envision? Do you th do you give him credit for sort of seeing where this fledgling pro game was going, or was he punching above his weight with this team and this? process I, I it's because it's 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 amazing to me because it's it's almost intertwined with 
the birth pangs, if you will, of uh, of pro basketball in this country, let alone the success of the team in Philadelphia. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, he, he was one of the uh, uh, originators of the American League. In fact, I, I always found this kind of interesting. Um, the American League, when it was formed in 1925, I believe it was, uh, among the founders were George Hallis uh, and Preston Marshall, both of whom later became owners of pro football teams. In fact, at that time, uh, were connected with those teams. Hallis was not the owner, but he was with the Chicago Bears, and Marshall was with the Washington Redskins. And they were, they were both the main uh, people in the, involved in the formation of the American League, and Gottlieb was, was involved with them. And, and what it says, in a way, is that, hey, these guys were football guys, but they also saw a future in basketball. And you know, this could be a big-time sport, too. And uh, equally interesting, I always found, that when Gottlieb joined the American League with his with his basketball team, and this, this was in the mid-20s, he was going after players other than the Spas players. And, you know, one of the players he went after? <laughs> this, this always gave me a real chuckle. This guy was a very good basketball player in college, very good player. But instead of being a basket, following a basketball career, he chose to play baseball. His name was Lou Gehrig, and Gottlieb tried to recruit him for the for the his the Warriors, the American League team. And Gottlieb or Gehrig turned it down, and said he wanted to focus on baseball. <laughs> Can you believe that? I mean, that's that's what he was trying to do. He was trying to build himself a, you know, a good team, and obviously one that would get some publicity too. So he had a he clearly had a pipeline, right? He was connected uh, to talent, and and obviously had the promotional chops and the organizational skills, I guess, to kind of at least make the case, right? That's an interesting story. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was too, and and. You know, there there are a lot of other people he went after, many of whom he he managed to sign, and uh, uh, in, in the ensuing years he had some pretty big men, names, especially local guys, and then with the Spas, you know, he had he had a lot of people who were big name players locally, and and many of them had been college stars, and uh, he he put the, those guys on the Spaz team, and, and later some of them were good enough to play for the Warriors when he first started uh, the Warriors when they began in 1946. That's a point I really want to kind of get into for a second here. So the Warriors name, right, is there's the original ABL sort of version both on and then the league sort of takes a, a dip for a while and then sort of comes back in a, a reconstituted form. Um, but there was a switch there. The, the the that initial Warriors team of the, the um, of the twenty late twenties was really the Spas, if you will, in disguise, right? But there's a name change really there. I'm guessing because you know he, I, why? I think I know the reason, right? Because it was too quote unquote ethnic sounding, maybe. Well, I think that's one thing. Yeah, they certainly didn't want to uh, appear like you know that was. Uh, uh, you know, uh, an all-Jewish team when they were playing 
in a league that was not that. And so they changed the name to Warriors. And later, actually, they changed the name briefly to Quakers, which, you know, was kind of funny because there had been other teams called the Quakers in addition to Penn. There had been some uh, pro teams called the Quakers, too. But the, 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 the Spas and then the Warriors were called briefly the Quakers. Somebody even wanted to change their name to Phillies, which uh, would have been kind of stupid, I think, since there was already a team called that. But, uh, yeah, they they uh, they had a lot of the good players from the city on it. And, you know, I, I interviewed some of these guys because they were still around. And uh, they, had, they had great stories to tell about those years. And, uh, like I say, some of them went on to the Warriors and played there. But, uh, you know, and and just Gottlieb was just so, so tightly wound into these things. And, and the, you know, the Stars, for the Philadelphia Stars, that was another area that he was really in deep into. And, uh, yeah, how, you know, he, how does he have time to uh, be that involved with, with the, the, the Negro National League, the second version of that, uh, and the Stars franchise. I'm guessing that may have had something to do with what you alluded to earlier, sort of that Sunday Blue Law thing, because, you know, I, a lot of the Negro League teams obviously needed to play or were playing in major league stadiums when their quote-unquote home tenants were on the road, right? So weekend dates mattered, and Sundays were half of those dates, right? Well, the, the the Philly teams and and Philadelphia actually has had Negro League teams since the early 1900s, and uh, at, at one point along the way, a team called Hilldale was formed, and uh, they were formed in 1910, and and later uh, were part of the uh, uh, several leagues actually, um, but were a very substantial team that played in, in Delaware County near. Uh, their field was not too far from where I live. And they, as well as the Stars, who were formed a couple years after the Hilldale team folded, they would play on Mondays in the uh, Philadelphia ballparks, whether it was the A's Park or the Phillies Park. Um, they would often play uh, doubleheaders on Mondays because back then Monday was a day off for Major League Baseball teams mostly. And so the stadiums were open, and the owners would rent them out. And typically, uh, the teams, the, the games would, would draw a good chunk of fans. Ten to 15,000 fans would come to their games, which they couldn't get any other time because, they're, first of all, the stadiums weren't large enough. And uh, secondly, they, they had to play, um, you know, during, during uh, the week or during a day, People were working and so forth, so they could play um, Mondays and, and sometimes uh, a lot of times it would be uh, night games. So they did that, but uh, uh, Negro League baseball uh, was was very well established in Philadelphia. Uh, unlike some other cities, there were a couple other cities that were. Uh, very well entrenched in Negro League baseball, but Philadelphia was certainly one of them. And Gottlieb was there again, part of it. You know, he he took over as one of the owners of the Spas or Stars, and he went to every game. And the stories I got about him sitting there in the stands um, at every game, and uh, 
don't know if you noticed, but I uh, my my latest book was on Biz Mackey, who was a Negro League catcher, and played both with Hildale and with the Spas. I mean the Spas, jeez, with the Stars. Um, as he was he's a Hall of Famer now, but uh, regarded as as one of the greatest catchers in Negro League history. And I I did a book on him. And he he played for both the Stars and Hildale, and and um, Gottlieb was his main guy. And, and in fact, as an interesting uh, side take here, Bismacki was the guy who made Roy Campanella into a big league catcher. As a Campy was of course from Philadelphia, and as a 15 year old, he joined a team in Baltimore that took him in a Negro League team. He quit high school, and the team was managed by Biz Mackey. And they could tell that this kid wanted to be a catcher and had the tools to be a good one, but he didn't, you know, have any idea of how to, you know, perform. And got, uh, Mackey took him under his wing and, and taught him all the rudiments of catching. And this is what Campanella became, and and until his dying day, Campanella always uh, attributed Mackey as being the guy who made him the kind of catcher he was. Um, but Mackey, <laughs> I'm getting a little off the beaten track here, but Mackey uh, did play for the Stars, and uh, when he wasn't playing, sometimes he would sit in the stands with Gottlieb, and they would chat about things. Uh, so Gottlieb was was very, very involved and the operation of the stars. There was another fellow who was basically the manager and the guy who ran the team, but Gottlieb was the money behind the team, and he provided uh, a lot of the, the thinking. So and, you and know, interesting, and interesting that there was, from what I could tell, no cross pollination between sort of these two franchises, if you will, that were rattling around Philadelphia. Right? There was no. You wonder why there wouldn't be any more, you know, like perhaps some of the uh, the the fans that were uh, going to Negro League games and the African American community, and um, you know, obviously the uh, uh, the uh, early uh, black base uh, basketball uh, teams and stuff. You think there would be a little some cross pollination there, maybe with the basketball enterprise, which, from all indications, seemed to be just he kind of just doubled down on on keeping. Uh, the team as an old Jewish team when the ABL kind of took its stop and, and he came sort of reincarnated the spas again for a good decade or so thereafter. Well, yeah, I think that was typically the case. Although once the, the teams, like in Philadelphia anyway, you can see pictures of Negro League games being played in uh, one of the Philadelphia team's ballparks. And there are always white people in the stands. And they were, I was told that when a, a Negro League game was played at uh, Shibe Park or wherever they were playing, the, uh, in the early days the Phillies played, had a stadium called Baker Bowl. If they were playing in one of those ballparks, um, a lot of white people would come to the games. And um, not just a couple here and there, but the pictures I've seen, there were quite a few in the stands. I don't know if that was quite as true going the other direction um, in terms of the black teams playing in their ho- in, on their own home fields. 
I know white people did go to those games, but I don't think in as great a numbers as they did when the teams were playing in, in uh, the, the, the Philly teams' uh, fields, the A's or the Phillies. Well, that, that also speaks to, as your, your point earlier, about the Stars being uh, perhaps one of the strongest uh, uh, Negro League teams you know, out there uh, overall, right? And that, that speaks to integration and, and, and broadly appealing versus just the narrower African-American uh, audience, uh, you know, the almost desegregated in some respects in terms of its fandom and stuff. I, that, so that, that speaks volumes, I guess, perhaps. And, and with, um, with Gottlieb's uh, involvement too, right? And he's, he's like the go-to guy, right? I mean, it, it's almost like a shot in the arm, if you will, right? Him sort of taking this uh, Negro league team under his wing, if you will, to, to the point of ownership, a part partial ownership, I mean, he, there's nothing that's not going on in, in, in sports in Philly without, I guess, Gottlieb being involved in it, right? So that's, it's almost well, like he was. Need, so it was. I mean, you know, he, he was buddies with Connie Mack and, and, and some of the others I mentioned. And so they all had this pretty tight group that uh, had a lot to do with the way sports were, were going in Philadelphia. <clears throat> but Gottlieb, Gottlieb had his, uh, he had his hands on a lot of different things. And, and in fact, when you you mention his involvement with um, integration, uh, late late in his life, uh, Bowie Kuhn named Gottlieb. He Bowie Kuhn was very very interested in getting Negro League players into the Hall of Fame, and Jackie Robinson and Roy Campanella had been inducted, but they had played in the big leagues. There were other guys who hadn't played in the big leagues, but who were great players in the Negro Leagues, who Bowie Kuhn thought should be in the Hall of Fame. And actually, so did Ted Williams, who made that famous uh, comment when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, saying that, uh, in effect, this is a place where uh, someday we should see people like Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson and so forth. And that remark really went over. In fact, I was there at, at that ceremony in Cooperstown. I heard it, and uh, people people applauded. And so Bowie Kuhn carried on this thought, and he named a 10-man committee to look into what Negro League players might be good candidates for the Hall of Fame. And Gottlieb was one of the 10 people on that committee, and it was a committee that included... Campanella was on that committee, Monty Irvin, and and uh, several several black uh, sports writers and and a couple owners, team owners. Anyway, um, I guess Gottlieb was maybe the only or one of the few white people on that uh, committee. But they they got together and they had these meetings and they decided they they kind of made a list of hey here's 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 who should be in the Hall of Fame. And the first guy that was on the list who was taken in wound up as being Satchel Page. The second guy was Josh Gibson. And on they went, taking, you know, other people, Buck Leonard, Judy Johnson, and so forth. And and Gottlieb was on that committee that initiated that whole process. And, you know, among other things, you can, there again, Gottlieb was involved in, in uh, something very important in, in you know, modern sports. Yeah, he's, and, almost, uh, he's almost like a renaissance guy, right, in, in many respects, right? Uh, you know, obviously uh, deep in the basketball thing, but there's lots of influences in, in 
in Negro League Baseball and, and other sort of facets of sports. It's it's a it's a pretty amazing story, and you know it's certainly a specialty. I guess long before it became a specialty, right? It's before agents, before sports promoters, you know, were you know, which are now actual careers these days, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, Gottlieb, you know, he was a guy who didn't sleep very long at night. He was up early in the morning, stayed up late at night. Sometimes would get up in the middle of the night and do some work. I mean, he 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 didn't spend much time in a rocking chair. That's for sure. A week ago, on and on. Let, let's maybe we could just uh, sort of like round the curve here with I, I think sort of one of the 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 sort of uh, uh, bigger sort of uh, uh, points of of his at least his basketball career, and that's this. I guess that the true maturation. And his involvement in and timing wise and just his 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 previous work in really what became sort of the last sort of foundational pieces of what is now known as the the NBA or professional basketball in earnest. And in particular, I'm talking about this uh, one of the two tributaries to the NBA, that being the Basketball Association um, of America. Now, I, I this is just after the war, um, you know, college basketball had really sort of taken off in terms of, uh, if you will, national popularity. The ABL and the SPAs were still kind of there, but really wasn't, you know, sort of that top tier aspiration when the original ABL at least got started before the Depression. Um, may, maybe you can kind of give us, give our audience a sense of sort of what this BAA was all about and uh, what uh, uh, Eddie's sort of contribution to it was. Um, I know one part of it was a at least the, borrowing the name from the previous version of the Warriors as the Philadelphia entry in this BAA. Well, you know, he, he was certainly one of the founders of the BAA in 1946 when it was formed. And, you know, the, the Warriors uh, were, were among the first teams and, and some others that, uh, you know, people wouldn't uh, necessarily uh, recognize today, but there were other teams. And, and then, you know, a, a few years later, the the BAA uh, merged with the uh, NBL, which was also another pro team at that which, or pro league mostly, at that time. Which was mostly Midwest, the NBL, yeah. Right, right, exactly. And that the two leagues merged. I think it was like around 1949 or sometime around there, and became the NBA. And and Gottlieb was deeply involved in in both those movements, and. Uh, you know, at the time he was uh, just a, he was a coach and, and a general manager. Yeah, let, let's, let, let me talk about that for a second. Cause we we've been talking to him as promoter and as as sort of co-owner and stuff, but I I think it's lost on at least me now in this conversation. He was a coach and a general manager. I mean, he was he was he, he was in charge of the on the court product now and too. Oh yeah, absolutely. And of course, later he became the owner of that team, um, but. Uh, yeah, he was the coach, and from <clears throat> all uh, indications that I got, he was he was a very good coach, and and uh, in fact, you know, he he did a lot of things uh, that people got a big kick out of. Uh, for one thing, he he did not like um, extra dribbling. He 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 or not he he did he liked more. To have a game where you pass the ball around, and he wanted to see the players not dribble so much, which they apparently did a lot of 
back in those days. So in order to get them to be a passing team, when they would practice sometimes, he would use a deflated ball or a partially deflated ball so that they wouldn't be able to dribble it, but they could pass it. <laughs> that That's what, you know, one of the funny things about his coaching was. He wanted it his way, and the players who I interviewed all told me that he, hey, if you did something he didn't like, uh, he wouldn't have any trouble cussing you out. And maybe he'd be your best friend five minutes later, but, uh, you know, you do it his way or forget it. And he he was a tough cookie that way, but you know they 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 certainly put together some good teams. And when you think of of who he had playing for him back then, and another thing that I always found interesting about his, his coaching days and and his later days as a as an executive with the Warriors, he always believed that it was better to load your team with local players because that would get the fans out to see the the games more than it would if your team was made up of a bunch of players who weren't from the area. So if you filled the roster with local guys who had played, you know, locally and maybe grown up locally, then you'd get more fans out. And so he he made a big thing about signing local players. And one one team that he won uh, the 56-57 team or 55-56 team that won, seven of his ten players had local connections. And the, most of them were natives, like uh, uh, Paul Arizon. You know, he was from, from here and went to college here. And same for Tom, Tom Gola, you know, and, and various others. Uh, and that was, that was one of his, uh, uh, you know, things he liked to do. And I always found that interesting because you look back at the Warriors rosters, and boy, if you if you were from here or went to college here and were any good, you had a good shot. And you know, I, I had a good friend over the years who, whose name was Bill Milkfee. They called him the Owl without a vowel because his name was M L K Y, um, <clears throat> and he was uh, an All-American at Temple and led the nation in scoring one year, in fact. And he was drafted by the Warriors. Well, Gottlieb couldn't wait to sign him because, hey, he was a local guy. <laughs> he, he, he went to Temple. The fans loved him. And, uh, God, and, and Bill, he asked for a little bit more money than, you know, they usually got in those days. And Gottlieb, uh, after some resistance, gave it to him because he, he wanted this guy on his team. I mean, this local All-American who led the nation in scoring, man, I mean, he's got to play here. <laughs> and then the same thing was true with Paul Arizon. Paul Arizon told me, he he asked when he got out of Villanova, and he was drafted by the Warriors, or, and, and Gottlieb came to him, and they talked, and, he, and Arizon said, well, you know, he told me this. He said, I wasn't really sure I wanted to become a pro basketball player. He said, I, I was thinking of going into business and, you know, making my career as a businessman. And he said, so I figured, well, if, if he wants me to play pro basketball, I'm going to ask for some extra money. So he says, I asked him for $10,000. And Gottlieb said, no, no way. I'm not going to pay you that much. And so 
fires and said, "Okay, well, I'm go- I'm out of here," you know, and and they went back and forth over the next few weeks, and finally Gottlieb said, "Okay, I really want you to play for this team," and you know, there again, Harrison was a, a, an All-American. He was a great player. He born and raised here, and went to college here. So he said, I really want you to play for this team. He says, and I'm going to give you the 10000 <laughs> And, you know, I guess that was big money back then. So Arizon got it. And and that's, you know, there again, uh, Gottlieb, he was thinking that, uh, you know, what was best for him and the team. And that was to sign this guy. And, you know, it was a pretty smart decision given Arizon became – one of the 50th greatest players in basketball history when they made that uh, uh, poll, took that poll some years back. Wow. They led the league in scoring two times, and you know. Well, yeah, and and evidenced again, obviously, with a Will Chamberlain in 1959, right? I mean, this is a guy that, you know, that Gottlieb is who's, you know, you can tell. I mean, in, in, in the BAA, those early years, like but the, before the merger to be to even create the NBA, and even the first years of the newly merged unit known as the NBA, were not guaranteed success by any means, right? I think people completely sort of lose uh, understanding of the fact that uh, this was uh, not sort of the easiest uh, creation, if you will. And you know, by all accounts, this is a guy who's working literally and seemingly figuratively day and night, right? Um, Coaching, general managing, scouting talent, uh, creating some rules uh, for the betterment of the game, um, selling tickets, right? Uh, Hustling, promoting, uh, counting the gate, right? So it's like he's doing like six or seven jobs all at once. I mean, this is a true pioneer who, in many respects, frankly, in all respects, you can see as the game professionally matures and as the NBA sort of gets its sea legs, right? This is probably one of the, if not the, quintessential guy who knows the sport as it's becoming a pro business from just about every aspect of the game because he was there and active and simultaneously active in all of those various facets, perhaps uniquely. Oh, yeah. Well, he, you know, he from the time he was a kid, he grew up with the game. I don't think anybody could have... Uh... Back in those days, know more about it than he did, and and everybody said that too. I mean, all the people I interviewed, uh, they they just you know credited him with the greatest of knowledge and wisdom about the game. All right. Well, tell tell me about sort of his later years because he he became kind of sort of the the dean of the NBA, right? I mean, a part of involved in various rule changes and evolutions over time. He still very much had a hand, if not the hand, in keeping the schedule sort of together. I mean, in many respects, he's he's almost like perhaps the institutional knowledge, I guess, of the league for most of its uh, uh, early and middle years, I guess. And um, and with all, you know, uh, with all due reason, right, because this is almost like he not only the flame keeper, but he's kind of like the guy who – I guess in his head or maybe in his office somewhere has the notes like why a 24 second clock in the first place or why a sixth foul uh, to keep the game kind of going versus five fouls or, you know, um, and I got to think that in many respects, he became kind of sort of the uh, 
I don't know, the Yoda, I guess, of the NBA in the, in the 50s onward, certainly until his, uh, his passing in the 70s. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, uh, in 1962, when he sold the Warriors, uh, in San Francisco uh, wanted a team, and so he sold them to uh, those people out there. And we were out without a team for a year. Meanwhile, the Syracuse Nationals uh, were going downhill. They weren't drawing people. They weren't attracting players to speak of. And, and they, they they had had a good good run at it, but they were going downhill. And they wanted to move, and, and Gottlieb got involved in that. This is, you know, when he was, the Warriors were gone now. And he got very involved because he knew the Syracuse owner. They were buddies. And he talked him into moving here to Philly. And that's how he got to Syracuse Nuts. They they came to Philly much on Gottlieb's uh, invitation. And he was the one who, who talked, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Danny Barone, uh, into coming here and and. From then on, he was sort of serving, served as an advisor with with the, the 76ers um, during his uh, final years. And, uh, you know, he used to see Gotti at games. You could go to a Sixers game and see him sitting there, you know, behind the, behind the bench or behind the scorer's table somewhere. He'd be somewhere down there. And... Uh, the funny thing is, what, through many of his years with the Warriors, uh, Gotti didn't have a big staff. He basically had two guys working for him. He was his own staff, right? Pretty much. He was. Well, he was. He, he but he had he had one fella who was the ticket manager, and he did a lot of other stuff. And he had been with them way back before the Warriors, and he wound up being with them for. Uh, more than 40 years and then they had another guy who who did all the publicity and handled all the promotional activities and he was with them for over 40 years and that was that was basically Gottlieb's office and in fact the one guy who did the publicity um, for much of those early years had a had a full-time job but he would be at every game and would he in addition to uh, being the PR guy, he would be the official scorer, and uh, he he eventually <laughs> invented some statistics that he's had be, it later became well known for, and it still exists. But uh, he he was uh, two of those guys were were Gotti's main people, and you know once in a while he he'd hire somebody part time over the years, but uh, and then he'd, he'd have. He had another guy who was with him going back to the early days with the Spas, who was his PA announcer. And he did some odd jobs, too. And they were they hung out together. They were best, best friends and, you know, often went, went out to dinner and so forth. And, and that guy served, too, with the team. But, you know, that's what he had. So he was, he was basically running the team in every angle, you know, on the floor and off the floor. So what do you what do you think his uh, if you could sort of put it into words right his, his legacy because to your to your point earlier like where's the movie right this is this is a guy who you know I I'm not sure most basketball fans of this generation or maybe even a generation prior um, kind of even know I mean perhaps they might look at the 
engraving in the NBA's Rookie of the Year award and see Eddie Gottlieb's name. But other than that, if anything, I, I you know, I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't know why he isn't more, I don't know, I want to say revered, but maybe more front and center, perhaps in the history in the game, because he is a plank. If you're, you know, if you're putting down a hardwood of creators of the game and the professional game, especially in this country, he's got to be a couple of planks worth on that court. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, I, I, I know what you're saying, and, and it often disappoints me that that's true. And I think part of the reason is that a lot of fans uh, and people in general don't care that much about history anymore. And you see that not just with Eddie Gottlieb in Philadelphia, but you see it around other places. And, you know, um, history is is becoming less and less important to people as I see it. And, uh, you know, that that's certainly true of Gottlieb. Now, we have a, a an organization in Philly that uh, puts plaques at different historic plaques at different sites, and they put one at Gottlieb's High School. But that's that's it. They they put one down near the stadium. Uh, they put an, another plaque down there. Uh, but you know, people don't see that typically, and uh, that's that's. <laughs> about the only attention that's been given to him in all these, you know, later years. Uh, how, about, how, about, uh, how about Golden State franchise currently? Is there any, you know, I, I guess, number one, any, and we get into this a lot with other conversations and stuff about sort of previous incarnations and, and the memories of such, right? So number one, I guess the question is, is there any hat tip to, the Philadelphia origins of the team. And I, and I know perhaps why not perhaps, but, but, you know, there is history involved in that. And number two, Eddie's involvement in the Philadelphia version and leading them into the supposed promised land of golden state, right? You think there would be some memory commemoration, a banner or something there? No. Well, not that I'm aware of. Now, when I was doing the book, I, I did communicate with people with the Golden State Warriors, and uh, you know they they knew who Gottlieb was and and had some records about him and so forth. And actually, uh, at the time, uh, they had some people uh, who had been connected with the Warriors in one way or another, including Al Adels, who had played here and later become the coach of the Golden State team. So I was able to talk to him, and he he knew. Uh, a lot about Gottlieb, but I don't think, to my knowledge, there is anything in particular out there that uh, mentions him or that gives any uh, attribution to, to his, um, you know, contribution to San Francisco basketball. And uh, you know, like I say, there's not all that much around here either. I mean, I, I went to his burial spot and. Uh, you know, there, there's no indication, and maybe, maybe there, there, there isn't typically in things like this. But you know, people don't know that he's there, his, his burial spot is there. So, you know, I, I and I, it, it, frankly, it, it, I find it very disappointing because people haven't paid attention to him that they, they should have, and this goes uh, for the present team too. I mean, the, the 76ers 
may not have been here without Gottlieb. And there should be certainly some something, you know, paid to his honor. But there wasn't. All right, cool, cool, cool. Great stuff from Rich. Thank you, kind sir. Uh, the story of Eddie Gottlieb uh, as, frankly, uh, open up a Pandora's box. I bet you there will be other topics uh, related to uh, the mogul, Mr. Basketball, to come in future episodes. I almost and just about guarantee. Certainly the Philadelphia Spas, uh, sort of a, a story that's uh, worth uh, digging much, much deeper into. The Basketball Association of America, which we've touched on very briefly elsewhere. Uh, the Philadelphia Warriors before they moved to Golden State. Certainly the Philadelphia stars of the Negro National League back in the day. Uh, so many great sort of uh, tangents to, to this story to come. Uh, and we look forward to pursuing those, maybe a few of them actually directly uh, with Rich again. Um, lots of great uh, books that Rich has written. But let's highlight the one that we uh, obsessed about this week. Uh, this is the first one to add to your, uh, to your library if you don't already have it. Uh, it is called The Mogul. Uh, it is written by Rich Westcott. Uh, the subtitle is Philadelphia Sports Legend Pro Basketball Pioneer. Uh, it is published by Temple University Press. Uh, it is a great and essential read. Uh, and uh, you can find uh, that as well as all of the other books that Rich has written. Uh, I want to say it's going on 24, maybe 25 books. Just go to his website at Rich. Westcott.com. Rich, R I C H, Westcott, W E S T C O T T, richwestcott.com. And uh, you will see a trove of great books. A lot of them, Philadelphia sports, uh, certainly sports, uh, baseball for sure, uh, a bunch of basketball stuff, and his brand new book uh, on uh, the, uh, the life story of Biz Mackey, the giant or a giant, excuse me, behind the plate, uh, Negro League star catcher. Uh, extraordinaire Hall of Fame catcher, too, uh, uh, for sure. Forward by uh, Monty Irvin. And I, it's, it's a, 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 I'm sure it's a, itself worthy of investigation. Perhaps we'll have Rich back to talk about that. Uh, he's also written, Rich has uh, a great uh, compendium of uh, the story of Veterans Stadium, uh, which we'd love to talk about, the, uh, the old vet. Uh, so lots of great stuff from Rich uh, to be found and had. Uh, and, of course, you can find uh, the... Uh, mogul book about uh, Eddie Gottlieb at our website, uh, goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode, number 201, and uh, you'll find a convenient link there that will whisk you away to Amazon, and you'll get uh, the book probably for hopefully the best price and uh, certainly the quickest delivery. Uh, and uh, you can search and find all of our old episodes on the website there, too. Lots of great stuff at goodseatsstillavailable.com, including, by the way, all of our social media addresses, uh, which you can uh, just follow directly if you'd like. We're on Facebook. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. You will see us on Twitter at Good Seats Still. Um, there is uh, a link to our email address, which is also something you can do directly at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And on the website, you can find a little link that will uh, allow you to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. So well, go ahead and do that too, why don't you, while you're there. Uh, our thanks to you for doing that. Our thanks to Jerry Payne, Dr. Jerry, 
Uh, thank you for twiddling with the knobs and uh, turning the dials this week. Jerry Payne, Audio Excellence. Thank you, kind sir. And um, I guess that's it. We appreciate, of course, your listenership. Thanks for all those cards and letters. And um, just thanks for listening. We love you to death for doing it. And uh, we hope you're staying safe and well. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Until then, our very best to you and yours. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.